We'll open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. As you're turning there, the, the goal of our study of Proverbs that we started almost two years ago was that we would go through chapter 9. And as we've mapped this out, we are going to finish, we're going to go through verse 21, 10 to ver- verses 10 to 21 in chapter 8 tonight. Then our next, uh, which is a month out after graduation, we'll finish up that chapter and then do all of chapter 9, which is really one unit, one sermon in one. And that will uh, finish up our study of these first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. It's been a great journey. I hope that you have seen on purpose God's design on how cyclical these admonitions are. If it sounds repetitive, you're right. But it's repetitive for a purpose. When you see things repeated over and over and over, and as I read, as we've studied together uh, with, with um, uh, the other guys who preach this, we've often said, well, we're saying the same thing that you said last week or two weeks ago in, in just a different word. That's exactly God's point. It's much like a parent raising a child. How many times as a parent do we ever say something to a child one time and that's it? Don't you wish it were that easy? So these cycles and these cyclical nature of coming around the same issues of wisdom and looking at it from different angles is deliberate and it's on purpose. Our theme going through this this, uh, study has been that we need to become wise enough to know that we are not wise enough, right? Well, this section uh, we've titled Wisdom's Assets. It's really kind of a little bit of review, review and also an introduction into the last section of the parental portion of this epistle, of this uh, <laughs> epistle. It feels like an epistle. This admonition for parents to think deliberately about raising their children. Specifically, Solomon was talking to his son Rehoboam about how to be Not just a man of God, but I think he's training him on how to be the king. As we'll see in just a few weeks, Rehoboam did not take this counsel very well. Let's read this passage just so that you have it in your mind. Then we're going to race through it because it is intended to be stitched together in a quick fashion. Proverbs chapter 8, follow along as I read verses 10 to 21. Proverbs 8, 10. Take my instruction and not... Silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit, is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than the choicest silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. 
There's a section of a little short biography on one of my historical heroes, Hudson Taylor, talking about, who's a great missionary to inland China. And it talks about the setbacks that he had that pushed reset for his own thinking. I can't improve on this. Let me read you this section. James and Amelia Taylor, these were Hudson's parents, loved their children and like all doting parents, they enjoyed giving them little treats on occasion. But once in a while, when Amelia brought, brought a dessert to the table for her family, James would say, who will see if they can do without dessert today? He explained it to his children this way. By and by, you will have to say no to yourself when, there are not, when we are not there to help you. And very difficult you will find it when you want a thing tremendously. So let us try to practice now. For the sooner you begin, the stronger you will have the habit. So the children were not punished if they chose not to give up the sweets. But if they were able to go the entire day without it, they were rewarded with the treat and something else more even the next day. Also, they met the loving approval of their parents. Hudson Taylor took this lesson to heart and learned early how to say no to himself. He went on to live a life characterized by self-denial for the sake of the gospel. And yet, when he looked back over his long life, he said this, I never made a sacrifice. How could he honestly say such a thing? It goes on. From his conversion in his teens, Hudson Taylor had a deep passion for God and a desire to serve him as a missionary in China. All through his young adulthood, his focus on this goal never failed. Most of China's inland cities had never seen a foreign missionary and a million Chinese each month were dying without ever having heard the gospel. Taylor could not understand how any believer could be unmoved in the face of such staggering need. He left his home in 1850 and, uh, to study medicine in London, planning to go to China at the first opportunity as a medical missionary. Taylor was touched by the plight of the poor in the slums of London. He chose to live among them in order to devote as much of his small income as possible to medicines and tracts to alleviate both the physical and spiritual suffering of the community. The damp, smelly neighborhood, aptly called Drainside, in which he rented a room, was a full four miles from the hospital, which meant that Taylor had at least an hour's brisk walk each way in every kind of weather, which he willingly made to sacrifice and serve for the poor. During his studies at the hospital, Taylor was required to dissect a cadaver. While working on a particularly dangerous specimen, a small open wound on Taylor's finger allowed contaminants from the cadaver to enter his own bloodstream. He became ill almost immediately. As soon as the teacher on duty learned what had happened and diagnosed malignant fever, he urged Taylor to hurry home, get his orders in, in, all in, affairs all in order, saying, you are a dead man, expecting Taylor would die within hours. Although Taylor did get very sick, he recovered fully. The physician who carried him credited Taylor's careful lifestyle and his long walks to and from the hospital as giving him the stamina to survive. 
Suddenly, his choice to live in Drainside did not seem like a sacrifice. During the same period of life, of Taylor's life, the woman he loved refused to marry him unless he gave up his dream of serving in China. Taylor ended the relationship with tears. He trusted that God, like his parents at the dinner table, would have something better for him later if he denied himself for the sake of the gospel. And his faith proved true. God provided him a wife when he reached China, one who shared his passion for missionary work. Maria grew up in China, the daughter of an English missionary in Shanghai. She was fluent in Mandarin as she was in English and became a great help and comfort in Taylor's work. It never cooled, he said. That is my love for her. Forty years later, it has not cooled even now. The relationship he gave up in London no longer seemed a sacrifice. In China, Taylor found that to gain an audience with people, he first needed to give up his European dress and his European customs. He adopted a pigtail and chopsticks and traveled from town to town, living in boats and small shacks in attic garrets and, and usually battling insects and vermin. Once on a journey to an inland city, he was robbed of his traveling, clothes, traveling bed, all of his spare clothes, his surgical instruments, and a Bible that was given to him by his mother. Taylor decided not to prosecute the thief who was caught because of the harsh Chinese penal system, but wrote, that the, culprit, wrote the culprit a letter instead granting him forgiveness and urging him to repent and believe the gospel. He described his plea to the errant servant in a letter sent home to England. That letter somehow fell into the hands of George Mueller of Bristol. He was so impressed by the spirit of the writer that he became a supporter of the mission. Taylor's sacrifice of the right to prosecute the man who stole his bed resulted in a supporter who would provide over $10,000 per year for the mission and would be a friend and advisor for him in the deepest part of his trials. Looking back, Taylor would say about that that it was no sacrifice to not pursue justice. Taylor endured many hardships including arrests, insults, slander, and poverty but lived his life believing what Christ said in Mark 10, 29, that if we give up anything for Christ's sake in the gospels, we will receive blessings 100 times better in this life and eternal life in the world to come. With that perspective, he could truly say, I never made a sacrifice. Wow. The book of Proverbs talks about a similar kind of choice that you and I are to make in the small and in the large decisions. If we're to choose wisdom, if we're to choose the better way, God's way over our human thinking, if we're to make these choices in the small areas and in the large areas, even though it may seem like a sacrifice in the moment, I'm convinced that like Taylor, in the end, we will say it was no sacrifice to choose God's way over our own. 
As we've seen over and over for some eight chapters now, Proverbs is, is a description of two paths that seem together at first, but diverge from each other very quickly. The life of wisdom and the life of folly or foolishness. There's the life of the wise and the life of the fool. The life of the foolish offers power and treasures and immediate gratification, material gain, sinful camaraderie, willing sexual partners. But wisdom offers laws and precepts, commands, principles, sayings. Folly leads to poverty, slavery, regret, and death. Wisdom, however, leads to riches, leadership, joy, and life. In the end, the one who chooses wisdom will look back at the temporary sacrifices of turning away from sin and say, it was no sacrifice. Wisdom then is a catalyst for reflecting and for acting righteously and knowing what to do that's right in the moment. We've said over and over, there's two categories of decision making when you, when you look at, at what the Bible teaches. There's, there's yes and no, black and white, right and wrong. That's pretty easy. Don't kill, don't murder. Pretty easy to figure out that, what, that, what that means. Do not lie. Pretty easy to figure out and apply. But then there's a whole host of decisions that we make that come under the category of wisdom that have moral implications but are not governed by book, chapter, verse. Who you marry, which job you take, uh, what time you get up in the morning, what clothes you wear. All of those, all of those can have moral implications, but they're governed by, by a, a whole panoply of wisdom decisions and principles that come together in our mind, measuring what's best, sometimes even over what seems to be good. Wisdom is all about making decisions and making choices. So at this point in this last parental section that Solomon is wrapping up to Rehoboam, I think he backs up and he, he looks at the assets that wisdom offers. For an outline tonight, we're going to look at wisdom offering four immaterial assets. Wisdom offers four immaterial assets. That's important because foolishness and folly always looks for material immediate gain. Wisdom says there's something to be earned, something to be gained, something to be benefited if we make better decisions than the immediate. The first is in verses 10 to 12. Intangible value. Intangible value. This means we have to stop and remember that there are values that are beyond just the visceral and the sensory. Wisdom is going to take the microphone Take my instruction and not my silver, verse 10 says, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, Solomon gives wisdom the microphone. Wisdom speaks. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. Verses 10 and 11 outline a series of comparisons. Remember, wisdom is personified in this whole chapter as a lady who is speaking, saying, listen to me like a mother, a wise woman. Follow me, listen to me, apply what I'm telling you. Verse 10 is a plea to make a choice. Verse 11 offers two reasons for the choice. Choose 
wisdom over gain. Choose what's immaterial over what's material. Exercise your soul rather than just your eyes. Wisdom here is displayed in reference to the most valuable things in the day. Silver and gold and jewels, probably red corals. And a blanket term, how about this phrase? All desirable things. That covers it, doesn't it? Anything you could ever want. Desire wisdom over any and everything you could ever want. You know, when you come to uh, November, we often, in, at least in the Holland House, a question gets circulated. What would you like for Christmas? It's a time we exchange gifts. What would you like for Christmas? When the boys were younger, that set off an unintended series of unfortunate events. What do you want became looking at every catalog and then every internet site to look at what can I have? And, and their eyes were bigger than my wallet. They wanted anything, everything. What do I want? That's a... That's a that's a strange thing to tell a kid. I have repented since then. I hope I've changed my fathering way. I never said, I'll get you whatever you want. Any desirable thing, what do you want? Do you have a punch list for what you want? How hard would it be if I said to you, and I'm not, I have $10,000 I want to give to you tonight and you have to spend it by tomorrow night. Would you say, oh, that's too difficult. I'm sorry. I, I couldn't possibly make my mind up so quickly. You have to give it to someone else. My suspicion is you could find what to spend that money on very quickly, wouldn't you? Couldn't you? Is it, is it difficult to, to, to think about the things we want? Solomon says every desirable thing we want should be the baseline for comparison to wanting wisdom more. And this is just not something we typically do. How many of us sit watching an advertisement, looking at a hunting catalog just for argument's sake, um, and, and just say, oh, I want wisdom so much more than this. Solomon says you ought to think about that. Because wisdom lasts for this life and the next. And the things that we desire on this world will stay in this world. Put together, this is saying that wisdom is better than your best dreams. Nothing can compare to her. Nothing can compare to it. We meet Solomon's group of synonyms again. Instruction, knowledge, wisdom, discretion. There they are. We've seen them all the way through these eight chapters. Instruction, education through discipline, knowledge, input gained through the senses. Wisdom, knowing how to act and think and discretion, which is discernment in decision making. All to say the key to understanding this is that wisdom is of more valuable than anything we could own materially. So do we spend time and energy, do we invest our resources to learn wisdom? Turn for a moment back over to the book of Job. I think this is an important parallel. Job chapter 28. One of the themes of Job is not only suffering and sovereignty. One of Job's themes that continually cycles through the book is the pursuit of wisdom. In Job chapter 28 verse 12. Job is reflecting and he says this, Job 28, 12. But where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? It's a good question. Solomon told us to chase it. Job is going to tell us where to find it. 
Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Just like Solomon said, it's not found in possessions, in material acquisition. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it. Neither can silver be weighed as its price. See the gold and silver. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not uh, to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. These are the same comparisons that Solomon's making. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? Thus, it is hidden from the eyes of all the living. It is concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we've heard a report of it. God understands its way. And he knows its place. Just pause right there. In this grand search for wisdom, Job and Solomon say, it is found with God and through his revelation. For he looks to the ends of the earth, verse 24, and sees everything under the heavens when he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. When he set a limit for the rain and the course for the thunderbolt. Then he saw and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And, and, he, and to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord. That, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. In other words, wisdom causes us to make moral choices that are, are, are deciding righteousness over unrighteousness. Good over evil. Right over wrong. And that feeds us into making those decisions that are not exactly governed by book, chapter, verse in the amoral decisions. Back to Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 12 tells us that wisdom is a treasure chest. It's a lottery for discovering what is needed for life. Listen, wis listen. wisdom is the Swiss army knife for your soul. It's supposed to have everything you need. In a small space. It's kind of like having a, a Home Depot in your heart. Everything you would ever need to do. Anything you ever wanted is right there if you'll take it. Intangible value. Not found in the land of gold and silver and stuff. A second of these four immaterial assets is in verse 13. Moral sensibility. This is going to sound exactly like Job. It would not surprise me if Solomon had been reading Job. How do we know that? Verse 13. Does this sound familiar? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Solomon describes the assets of wisdom. He points to this this super important moral compass that has to happen in the life of a wise man, a wise woman. I think it's fair to say that the fear of the Lord is the most pervasive theme in the whole book, beginning back in chapter 1, verse 7. And the fear of the Lord 
always, always, always has moral implications and moral applications. The fear of the Lord is a positive. It's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And it's a negative. It's the beginning of a resolute hatred of all that's evil. By the way, the, herd, the, the word hate, sane in the Hebrew, means an emotional attitude of distaste, opposed, detested, and despised of the things that you wish to avoid and have no contact with. It's things that you hate so much you fear. This can, kick, this can catch you off guard if you've ever thought that all hating is wrong. If you're going to be like God, it's going to involve hating what he hates. Not all hatred is wrong. To hate evil is righteous. Specifically here, the things that repulse God, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, and a perverse mouth. God hates those things. Let's break that down. Pride and arrogance. The rising up of self-will, self-promotion, self-congratulation, as opposed to humility before God. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. To this one I will look, the one who is humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at my word. 1 Peter 5. God looks with favor to those who are humble. Philippians 2 is a command to humble ourselves before others, looking out for their interests. God hates pride. God hates pride and wisdom hates pride as well. But full disclosure, I, when I look at my own heart and the, the wicked inclinations of it, I am a self-proclaimed expert in the recognition of pride in everyone else. Oh, I can see it. I can smell it. You can feel it. Someone's talking about themselves or, and they're, they're self-promoting or someone's talking only about themselves and their ailments and their, their trials and, and you say, ah, that's, you just think about yourself. That's, free. that's pride, that's pride, that's pride, that's pride, that's pride. Do we recognize pride when it's in our heart? When it comes out of our mouths? Pride and arrogance, he says, the evil way. It's already been developed in chapters two and three and four. It simply means a lifestyle and a choice of unbelievers. Then he says the perverse mouth. Matthew 12, 34. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we want to know what's in the heart, we listen to the words. Not only in others, but in, in ourselves. Do you ever listen to yourself what would it be like to record a whole day's words that we spoke and then be forced to sit and listen to it? I wonder how many personal pronouns would show up. Perverse mouth here is speaking in a way that distorts, perverts, that lies, that brags, that dishonors God's values. Do you hate those things? Do you hate those things in your own heart? I know I may get an email, but do you hate those things in venues of entertainment? Or do we enjoy being entertained by these things that we're supposed to hate? 
Do we hate these things? Do we hate them more in others than we do in ourselves? Do we see them in our own lives? If you want a really good, honest assessment, ask your spouse or your kids or your parents or your close friends, do you see pride in my life? And then be ready when they have an answer. Boy, what would our church be like if we gave one another permission that if we heard pride in each other, we could say something like this. Hey, listen, I don't know what's in your heart, but that really sounded proud. I remember someone saying that to me, exact phrase, years ago. Rick, I don't know what's in your heart, but that sounded proud. And my first knee-jerk thought was, I don't know what you're talking about. You're the proudest person I've ever met. Rather than stopping to be corrected, are we correctable when people help us hate in our own heart what God causes, asks us to hate. So wisdom has intangible value and it has moral sensibility both with self and with others. Number three, leadership competence. Now this has to do with leadership principles in a macro level, but I think if you'll evaluate your life, all of us have dimensions and expressions of leadership in some area that God has granted to us. <clears throat> Verse 14. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, that is wisdom, kings reign. Look at the leadership there. And rulers decree justice. They know what to do with this right. By me, wisdom, princes rule and nobles rule and all who judge, how? Rightly, righteously. Remember the context for Proverbs is a manual for Solomon to train young Rehoboam to be the kind of leader that God calls him to be. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, you find out that Solomon in all of his discipleship of Rehoboam his example with the thousand women in his life, with the offering up uh, uh, sacrifices to idols on high places, setting up pagan temples. Rehoboam heard more of what Solomon was in that season of his life than, than what he taught. And he divided the kingdom. Look at the verses. Verse 14. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. Counsel. Counsel. This means giving advice that helps. Giving advice that helps. Think about that. Counsel belongs to the category, the virtue of the asset of wisdom. Don't you find when you need counsel, you, you think of someone wise you want to go to to have input into your life, not, not the, the most foolish person you know? I am understanding. Power is mine. He links together in the Hebrew. Understanding and power, he makes them in parallel. Power is not uh, 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 the, the rule of everything around you. It's the power to, in the context, know and do what's right. But he plays off that and shifts in verse 15 to ultimate power. Kings by me will reign. 
Solomon was very acquainted with being a king. Solomon had been given wisdom. Solomon understood that his best days as king was when he was ruling wisely. Rulers decree justice. Notice that wisdom is not just giving uh, uh, sound advice for the ruling of a kingdom. It involves making right and wrong decisions, decisions that have moral influence, justice. By me, princes rule, nobles rule, and all who judge rightly. We're back again to the moral dimension. Wisdom gives leadership the principles it needs to do what's right. If you're in any leadership position, and I know many of you have, have multiple layers of leadership. If you're a parent, this applies. If you're a student at a school, if you're in a homeschooling group, or if you go to a, a classical conversation, if you're in any category where you can exert influence, you have the opportunity to exert wisdom. But wisdom has the courage to, look at that last phrase, decree justice. The hardest part of leadership is doing what's right when you know it will have an adverse effect on people. Oh, sometimes doing what's right hurts. Sometimes doing what's right means correcting people. Solomon is saying that wisdom in the arenas of leadership though exercises justice, decrees what's right, does what's right, decides what's right, regardless of the consequences. That's powerful. That's an entire leadership course in three verses. Leadership is composed of the ability to influence others by wisdom, by counsel, by justice, by fairness, by rightness. Parents, what would that be like if that's how we looked at our, our shepherding of our children? Most of us lead in every category. We lead in a way that our default is we want to be liked by those we are leading. And everyone has that. And there's nothing wrong with the desire to be liked. I don't think anyone wants to be disliked. But when the desire to be liked and appreciated makes us suspend moral justice and make wrong decisions that are, that are frankly morally not honorable, you have to probably lie to cover them. It spins a web of, of cover-up. We've stepped out of godly wisdom. The path to becoming a leader as well you know, I had an opportunity this <clears throat> last week. In fact, occasionally I meet with a group of high school students. It's just a joy. And these high school men are basically saying, hey, Rick, help us in how we can think of ourselves as leaders. This doesn't happen overnight. And you become a leader in the future by making righteous decisions in the present. And that's the application of wisdom. That's how Solomon's point. The moral sensibility translates into giving leadership that has moral decisions. And then number four, divine welfare. That's another asset, divine welfare. Uh, verse 17. I love those who love me. This is wisdom talking. And those who diligently seek me will find me. That's so encouraging. Wisdom is not playing hide and seek. It's in full sight, waiting to be discovered. 
The love of wisdom has a reciprocating relationship with her. To love wisdom is to be loved by her. How does a virtue love? I mean, wisdom is personified here. How does wisdom love? This is where we understand that wisdom is a divine attribute. To love wisdom is to love something that's true of God. So to love wisdom is to love one of God's attributes. It's actually to love God himself. Wisdom, again, does not play hide and seek. It stands in the streets. It shouts with, with its full voice. It calls out. It's not for the super smart or the spiritual elite. Wisdom can be found by those who seek her. Verse 17 is clear. Verse 18. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. Listen, this is not the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It's not a promise of becoming rich, but a guide for not becoming poor. It's really important. Notice that wealth is both material and virtuous. My fruit, verse 19, is better than gold. Even pure gold. Remember the refiners back then, they had to uh, melt gold four, five, six, up to seven times to get the dross to rise and scrape it off. They would heat it up again. The dross would rise, scrape it off over and over and over. That was gold and pure gold that had been refined. My yield is better than the choicest silver. Back to the comparison. What do you want more than what's right and to have the wisdom to understand what's right? Verse 20. I walk in the way of righteousness. It is always morally drenched. In the midst of the paths of justice to do what's right. To endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Ah, hang on. There is the cause and effect principle that wise people are rewarded by wise choices. Wisdom is making big and little decisions to do what is right and what is best. If you want it simple, that's it. Wisdom is making little and big decisions to do what is right. That's the moral side, the yes and no, the right and wrong. And to do what is best in looking and evaluating the options. You know, the more I, I study Proverbs, and I've heard these other guys say this over and over and over if you look at this passage before us, wisdom is really all about understanding delayed gratification. It's saying, I, I don't want to spend all of my spiritual, my emotional, my financial, my relational resources in the moment if I can invest them better for the future. I love what Hudson Taylor's parents did. You can have dessert today. It's going to be on the table all day long. You're welcome to have it. But if you can learn to delay that gratification until tomorrow, we're going to give you the dessert and something better. If you want a very wise little exercise for your children, especially young children, I think Taylor's parents were onto something. Learning that making better choices over immediate choices that are right choices and not wrong choices begins to train the character of not only a person who's going to make good choices, but it begins to train the character of a leader. 
Wisdom calls out. Wisdom is asking, are you listening? You know, Aaron and Adam and Myrl and I have been pounding through this, this book. And I want to confess, it keeps sounding awfully much the same as last week. And I think for good reason. Knowing what's right and wrong and knowing what's better over best, that's wisdom. But it means deliberate, slowing down and making choices. 